welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're super excited to be here today with Stephanie Duncan-Smith. Stephanie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for those of our listeners who don't already know you and follow you. Hi, all. I'm Stephanie, and it's great to be with you today. I am an acquisitions editor for Baker Books. I've spent my career in publishing, mostly in editorial, but also through the magazine world and publicity angle of the publishing process as well. And I am based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with my husband and daughter and write Slant Letter, which is an email newsletter on Substack for writers um, about the writing craft and also the soul care that is so much part of the writing process. Definitely. And did I see you're also in seminary right now? I was, I graduated last spring. Yeah. Congratulations. I'm coming up on a year being out of school after I think it was a seven year journey through the program, which is what I could do just part-time studies with full-time work. I did my program through Western Theological Seminary and really with the intention to support my work in publishing better and go deeper in that. It's been a long ride, but a really rewarding one. Oh, that's neat. That's very cool. Listeners know that we are kind of working our way through a series about getting traditionally published. And as an acquisitions editor, you know, often acquisitions editors are asked to be on podcasts to talk about platform and they're asked to talk about writing a great proposal making a great pitch. And we will get to all of those things eventually in our series. But I think it's very rare to hear from an acquisitions editor about the quality of the writing that they're looking for. And so that's what we want to explore with you today. And we were very excited that you said yes to, to this topic and uh, to being here. So can you tell us a little bit about how you think about the quality of the writing when you receive a proposal? What kind of writing are you looking for? And how do you kind of weigh the strength of the writing relative to other factors like platform or marketing plan or anything else? That's a great question. Of course, all of those elements matter and we do have to weigh them in the ultimate decision of 
moving forward with a publishing offer and plan or not. But I, like most editors, I think will tell you, it doesn't take long to read a writing sample and know if you're moved or not. And that's often where I begin when I look at a new proposal. I might take a quick look at the, the summary, the big idea, just to orient myself. But I might skip ahead uh, to the writing sample to see what's here. Is it is it meeting the reader where they are? Is it proposing something new? Is it making a claim that's creative and case-making? Or is it something that I've seen before, uh, something that I've seen a lot, kind of, you know, the same message that it's important, you know, but we're always looking for that, that fresh factor. And that often shows itself in the writing or not. I, I, I think it doesn't take long to get a sense for that. That's really interesting. Most people who listen to this podcast consider themselves writers, want to be a published author. And actually the writing piece is the part we get asked about the least and people seem to be curious about the least. They, they frequently want to know, is my idea good enough? How do I build a platform? How do I write a query letter? You know, all these kinds of granular things, again, that, that do matter. But we don't often get asked or hear about, is my writing good enough? Or how do I become a better writer? And it's probably one of the harder prescriptives to offer too, right? Because it's mm -hmm. subjective and creative. So what is your advice for people who want to become better writers good enough that they can attract an editor like yourself? Yeah, I think this will sound like the most obvious answer, but it is the best one I can offer. And that is if you're interested in improving your writing craft, read as much as you can and mm -hmm. read great writing because we, we absorb what works and what doesn't work intuitively as we read great writing. It inspires your own style. It's not about copying and pasting what other writers are doing, but you take in so much when you immerse yourself in stories that just really deeply speak to you and arguments that are strong and sharply made. And there's just so many benefits to starting with the reading. So that might sound like, like the obvious answer, but I really do I don't know how else you get there. I don't. Right. Yeah, me neither. Short of like going to college for it or something, you know, I don't know how, how else you do it. Right. Yeah. And I always say for myself, I always learn best by example. So whenever I'm trying to figure something out, I, I will literally go pull books off my shelf and see how other people have done it. And I think maybe to make it a little even more particular than just read more, read as a student of writing. And by that, I mean, get your pen out or your highlighter and underline what grabs you and then ask yourself why, what is the tactic here or the principle that's working? And can you isolate that and name it and learn from it? And 
the best case study is often in first chapters because a first chapter of a nonfiction work is, I mean, fiction too in its own way, but a, a nonfiction first chapter, it's setting the stakes for the whole book and casting a vision for the whole journey ahead. So there's a lot of setup work that has to be done there. And that can be such a great way to educate yourself and say, okay, how, where did, where did this author start this book? Why did they start here? Um, why did they kick it off with this story? What's working there? Why is this striking me? How did they end? You know, what's their intro? What's their outro? Just really getting under the hood of what's working. You don't need an MFA to do that. <laughs> you can grab five books from your shelf right now and get to work. And I think make some really strong connections all by yourself. So that's just a very simple practice, but I think just learning from others and, and what's working. That's really great advice. I've even heard too, I was listening to a, a comedy podcast and the stand-up comedian was saying something similar. Actually, he was making a point that sometimes he feels like he can't even enjoy comedy anymore because he's so used to dissecting it. And I, I, hopefully we don't find that in the books that we read, but, but yeah, I love that. And we've even advised clients and, and listeners to do that when it comes to structure to Ariel and I teach a lot of book mapping. And so we're pretty shameless about the fact that when we don't know where to start, especially in something like memoir that doesn't have as much of a formal yes. way to it, go mm -hmm. grab your favorite memoir and see how they see where she started see see where she ended see where she broke up the chapters and like you said why why is it structured like that like to start to obviously we would never endorse plagiarism but mimic mimic people that's kind of what we're all doing anyway and that you know we're this amalgamation of everything else we've consumed so that's great advice yeah i love that for the structure too absolutely liz i think it's interesting because you're right, this seems to be the area where people are least curious, but probably should be most curious because good writing is a result of so many choices. And there are just almost limitless options that you have as a writer. If you could tell this story, but not that story, you could start it this way, but not that way. You could use this hook, but not that hook. You could try that first line or that first line and it, learning how to make those choices with the result of a really moving and incredible story that feels very fresh and new in some way, that's really hard to do. So, and Stephanie, I want to also clarify real quick too, you as an acquisitions editor, you focus mostly on nonfiction or do you acquire fiction books as well? I'm exclusively nonfiction. Okay. Awesome. So when you say that like a big element of what you're looking for is that freshness. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about what that looks like to you? Is it something about the voice? Is it something about the, the way the author presents the content, all of the above and something else? Yeah. I talk a lot about this as you might imagine in slant letter and the big idea that I'm about that I'm looking for that I'm constantly kind of workshopping and exploring is what is the boldest statement you have to make about your subject matter? That's really what I'm looking for when I read a new proposal because there's 17 books on my shelf right now about living a meaningful life. 
And that matters. I can't, and I don't knock that. I won't say that we have enough books out there on this. We don't need more. We actually do because I still need help living a meaningful life. And I've read 17 of them at least. We we still need those, but I don't want to read the same book that I've read before. I need, I need that that angle, that fresh slant, that bold statement to take me into new places where I haven't been yet. I think that's the challenge. And I don't, yeah, I don't want to be dismissive towards anyone's passion. That's not what I'm trying to do. But as an acquisitions editor, I I have, let me like draw some limits around that. I can't judge what's important. I can't judge what's, what should or shouldn't be passionate to you as a writer or what quote unquote matters or doesn't matter. I am no judge of that. I am only assessing, will this make for a strong book that people will want to buy and read? So that's where I think I like to draw a firm line because you as a writer might have something that is just an absolute burning heart passion for you. And a book might not be the best expression for it. It might be an article. It might be a localized small group in-person experience. It might be a one-to-one conversation with someone. Uh, it, It can be so many different things. A book is just one medium of many. So I think where I, a myth I wish I could defuse and dismantle is some, a lot of times I think authors take editors feedback as passing judgment on this doesn't matter. And that's not usually the message that we're hoping to send back, but we, but we are probably trying to parse out, is this a book? So that's the question just to put some definition around it. And I think the essence that I am looking for when I read a new proposal is, whoa, that made me think about this topic differently, or that made me see a fresh perspective here that I have not considered yet, or that made me ask a question that I hadn't thought of. That's all part of a strong angle. And I do, I really like to put a superlative on that and say, make the boldest statement. Like now is not the time to hold back or play down or kind of hedge. I really, I'm looking for writers who are willing to make a claim and bold, not in the sense of shock factor or clickbait tactics, but bold in the sense of this is what I mean. And I'm standing by it. And as a result, it stands out because we've heard, we've heard all the soft takes, you know, before, but give me the bold one. I'm interested in that. And then just one practice to really get to the guts of a thing that I really like is, can you take your message? We talk about elevator pitches, right? In publishing, like what's your elevator pitch? And it's a start, but I actually find that just summarizing what your book is about is not as strong as narrowing it into a statement that's making a directional claim. About is like a, 
it's very amorphous and it's like, oh, my book is about knitting or it's about forgiveness, but I don't, I don't know what your point is yet. I know the topic, but I don't know what the point is. So one practice to really get to the heart of a strong angle, I think is, can you give it a superlative? Can you say the best thing you can do for X or the greatest enemy of Y or the most important thing? Can you, can you really bring it into that language of ultimates? That's one way to test the waters and see what's there. Wow. That was fantastic. That's so helpful because we hear a decent amount about fresh, you know, you need a fresh take, an angle, voice even plays into that sometimes, but it feels so esoteric to people. It feels hard to grab onto. What do you mean by that? How do I know if it's new? Is it new enough? How, you know, that sort of a thing. So I love it when people, like you say, like you said, here's the directive, here's the superlative. What's the boldest statement you can make? I heard another editor friend one time say like, tell me something new about a subject that I already love. I do too. I love that. So can you tell us, like, can you give us an example of a time when maybe there was an author who maybe had a small platform or no platform or something, but something about the writing in particular just grabbed you and you were like, I need this. I have to have this. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little about like why, why you made that decision. I love that question. And a couple different titles come to mind, but I, I'll tell you one in particular There was a proposal that crossed my desk years ago, and it was a memoir, and it was by a woman who had no platform. And what I mean by that is like, she maybe had a private Facebook page, but that was it. And this was a, it was the story of a, of her childhood, really. She was in her... 70s or 80s when she submitted the proposal and it was a reflection of life growing up in Appalachia um, during kind of the World War II and aftermath era and just what life was like and how it was different and stories of her family. It was the writing that caught me and I just read it and thought this is so rich and vivid and fascinating about the human experience, even though I have no personal affinities with her experiences, but they spoke to me on a human level, just really, really beautifully wrought and and strong messages of the power of connection and family and goodness in a hard world. So her writing really, really got me. And I'll say from a publishing side, you'll, you'll hear You'll hear editors and publishers talk a lot about memoir is a really tricky genre because there is, you have to, you have to do a little translation work to get to the felt need. It's not always leading with that. Um, And people are busy and they want books that can help them. So memoir can be, can be a challenge. So it had that going against it from the beginning. She had no platform, but I read it and I thought, this is the kind of book that could win awards. It's just so strong. So we took a chance on it. And 
published it. And I wish I could tell you that it was a immediate success from the start. And it was not. Um, this book has been out for, for years now. But I will tell you this. There was a moment, um, maybe even within the past year, I just kind of happened upon it again online. And I it stopped me in my tracks because this book has over 1,600 five-star reviews on Amazon. Oh my goodness. This is from a woman who's basically untraceable online. And that right there is the power of word of mouth, which only happens when there's great writing. Because we love to talk about the books that really move us. You can't manufacture that. You know, there's no, there's no insanely brilliant marketing plan that can manufacture that if, if it's not great writing. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of sad and heartbreaking publishing uh, stories, but this is a heartening one. And, um, I just thought that that is the power of great writing. People want to talk about it and tell other people to read it. And this was not an overnight success to my memory. I don't think it, I don't think it met its first year sales goal, but you know, years after the fact it's, it keeps going. And there's a long-term vision there that again, rests on the power of writing. Not all stories are that happy, but that one made me pretty happy. We always want, you know, everyone in the industry and readers, we always want the great writing to get recognized. So when it is, no matter the scale, no matter the timeline, that's something to be celebrated. Okay. I'm dying to know the title of this book because yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, it's called Running on Red Dog Road. Okay. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's a really wonderful book. And you can look at the Amazon reviews and see for yourself. But okay. Oh, that's so exciting. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll, this podcast will cause kind of a resurgence in sales Maybe. and it'll become yeah. a bestseller. And Please, that would be incredible. Start. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I love about that too is that we tend to see, especially first-time authors, agents and editors as these sort of mysterious gatekeepers to your dreams. And like, are they getting my stuff? Are they reading my stuff? Do they, is there some magical thing I have to do or say? And, you know, in my experience, of course, this sounds so silly, but most agents and editors are just people who really like books, like, like everybody else, you know, in the industry. And like, when you come across something that grabs you, then you respond to it in the same way anybody responds. So of course there's, I know there's, there's financial stakes and there's other calculations, but in general, you know, every, I'm actually working on a book with an agent right now about how to get signed. And one of the things I keep coming across, because it's a it's a common question for us to ask um, the people we're interviewing is like, okay, so tell me about first time author you took a chance on. And every one of them just said, like, I just liked the writing, you know, I just liked this. This is why I got into the business, because I like books and I like good writing. And again, I know there's more to it than that, but I just love that those kinds of answers because it humanizes people and it demystifies it a little bit, you know? Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. And I think I always love to ask my industry colleagues 
you know, what are you reading right now for fun? And I think their book stacks tell you a lot about who they are as, as readers first. And yeah, that's why we're here. You know, that's why we're here because we love it too. And it's what lights us up. We say no a lot. And we, I mean, the gatekeeping thing is, is real and it's, it's part of our professional lives, but I don't know a single acquisitions editor who isn't rooting for really strong writers. That doesn't mean that we'll, we'll always be able to move forward, but we are rooting for the writers. And that is, that's very personal to us. Well, it kind of makes me think too of the editor author partnership because it is to some degree so personal who you choose to work with and the books you are drawn to, you know, as a word of encouragement to our listeners and aspiring authors, if an agent or an editor like doesn't want to acquire your work, there are so many more out there who will resonate. And like you said, it it can feel so personal when you get a rejection. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But a main one might just be that wasn't the right fit. We don't, I don't like every book that's ever been written, you know, and not every editor is going to resonate with your exact writing. I don't know what, if this is worth putting out there, but you know, what came to mind when you're talking is um, the Supreme Court justice, they, she was actually talking about pornography or he was a guy, he was talking about pornography and, he, and someone asked him to define it. And he said, I can't define it. I just know it when I see it. I was like, Oh my gosh, like that kind of, you know, that that feels true sometimes about the manuscripts. The way, the way you were talking about it, it was like, you know, we can put some some helpful granular tips out there for people. But in general, it's yeah. like, well, sometimes you just know it when you see it. And I know that's unhelpful, yeah. but it just, know. <laughs> you know. It's, in, it's infuriatingly unhelpful, but yeah. I totally see what you're saying. I think what, I think the subjectivities that you're talking about are one of the biggest intangible factors that shape every publishing decision. Mm-hmm. And I think most editors, most editors, they have their success stories of, I, I saw the vision from the beginning, not, not to, you know, like pat ourselves on the back too much, but just they saw what the author saw all along. They caught the author's vision and supported it. And it went the way everybody hoped. And then we also have the stories of the ones we completely got wrong Yeah, where we were like, we just don't see it. We just don't see the vision and, you know, we'll pass. And then someone else who, who saw it will make something of it. And we'll be like, well, we, we, we got that one. We read that one wrong. It, it can be humbling. And it also is just a testament to the subjective nature of reading itself, because take a glance down any bestseller list. Some of them will be for you. And some of them are absolutely not your cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, those, those personal preferences and leanings and subjectivities, taste, style, voice, topics. I mean, they play into our review editor to editor and also, you know, team member to team member, pub boards are full of, there's a lot of different people at that table and they all come to it with their own set of 
things. So yeah, I think if I could speak to the authors and, and the writers who are working hard for that proposal and working hard to find that publishing fit, it's um it can be so discouraging to hear those no's, but I do think it's worth finding, it's worth waiting for the right fit and someone who really does understand what you're about and what you're trying to do. And that's when you can really make something happen. And again, kind of like what I was saying before, you know, we're, we as, as the, this side of the editor's desk, we're not, we're not Sears, you know, we can't, we have a lot of experience and expertise, but we can only speak from our sliver of things. A rejection from one person does not, is never the final word on the viability of a project. I think that is one of my um, most memorable takeaways from the whole Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House case was just hearing, you know, again, and and seeing just in, in the numbers, the stark reality that every editor is just taking their best guess. And in some ways it, you know, their publishing list really is just a curated list of things that they loved and felt passionate about. And sometimes, you know, editors can't, can't take on whatever they want. And also sometimes they, they have to take on things they don't want to. It happens occasionally, but for the most part, an editor's list is really a reflection of them in a lot of ways. And we are, we are curators, expert book curators. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a good transition to your own writing. Cause I know you, you know, you have your amazing newsletter, um, which I really enjoy reading and, you know, you are a writer, uh, as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you balance, you know, trying to put out your, you know, freshest, boldest thinking in your writing, and also balancing creativity and marketability. You know, how do you think about all of those things in your own writing? Yeah. Um, I think first I would differentiate between writing for self-expression and writing for a readership because those are two very distinct but different creative processes and they're both creative processes i uh you know it's interesting i have long said i have the luxury of living in obscurity on my side of the desk i don't have to do what i ask my authors to do which is be public and that's really hard and all the you know platform building stuff that is always in conversation in, in writing communities, it's, it's so, so hard. It asks so much of you and writing for yourself doesn't do that. If you just need to express what's happening in, in your world personally, that's something that's available to all of us, whether or not you ever want to see your name in print. And there's such great value in that for myself writing has been, it has long been a personal practice. And um, there's a lot that I don't ever plan on sharing, but it benefits me. And I also enjoy the process itself. I enjoy the creative process of putting something together and naming realities. So I love that for what it is. 
And then, yeah, the marketability question, I, I think that is the creative process of meeting readers where they are and engaging them in a shared experience. So they both matter. They're both their own kind of skill sets and process. And then, yeah, I mean, balancing them, I suppose the first thing is just knowing who your reader is. And if it's you, let it be you. If it's other people, if you do plan to write for the public, then yeah, that raises a, a whole new set of questions in terms of how are we kind of welcoming them in through the door, getting them into this message, what you have to say. As a good host, I think that's a framework that I come back to a lot in terms of promoting your work. And that is, if it mattered so much to you in the first place, it's it's not worth getting weird about extending the gift of that to other people. And I fully understand the weirdness that the ways we get squirmy around self-promotion. And I would also say, you'll never hear me promoting self-promotion. And the the best, the most authentic promotion of your work isn't about promoting you. It's promoting the universal insights to the human experience that your work represents. It's not about billboarding your face out there. And we've seen that and we it's distasteful, you know, for all of us. But if you've written something, whether it's a, an article or an email newsletter or an Instagram post or a book, if you've written something that is meaningful to you, chances are it can be meaningful to others and that's a gift. So I really, I come back to the, the framework of hospitality a lot, which is simply making generous space for your readers to feel at home and receive the gift that you have to offer. That feels a lot more comfortable to me and to most writers I know than hustle, 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 sell, sell, sell. So that's, that's you know, there's ways to do things well, there's ways to do things that are true to you. And we've all seen that, the alternatives, but I do think there's always a choice and you can, you can style your, your, how you market your writing just as much as you style your voice in actual writing. And, you know, I, I think it opens up new creativities when you, you allow yourself to think there's not a grid here that you have to follow. You can make this yours too, just in the same way that you made your actual work yours. Um, there's not one way to do it. So I think there's there's freedom to be found, but I also recognize just the inherent angst in putting it out there, which is, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I love the reframing it as being a host or coming back to that hospitality piece. I'm I am definitely going to take that with me because I think I definitely fall into the trap of feeling, feeling that angst and feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to like perform. And that's not really what people want, you know, but that's, that is what I think social media and just the whole, I don't know, there, there is a, there's an element of performativeness, if that's a word, um, online and it does take away a lot of the joy, but I love that if I can, you know, kind of reposition it as no, I'm here to host a conversation and I'm here to kind of be the facilitator 
of, of other people's ideas as well. That makes it a beautiful, beautiful gift. Like you said. Yeah. I think that mindset just makes all the difference and it's, is it, is it easy to say and hard to practice? Yes. Yes, it is, but it's a good place to start perhaps. So are there any books that you would recommend that people read on writing craft? Always. Yeah. So many good ones. You know, one of my, one of my earliest reads that I would recommend today is um, one of my favorite writers, uh, Madeline Langle's Walking on Water, which is about creativity. And she also brings in kind of the spiritual dimensions of the creative process in, a, in some really beautiful ways. That's wonderful. She, she has such, she's such an iconic writer and she also has written so much that just a great person to learn from. So that's one of, that's a favorite. I also often, I, I do work with a lot of memoir or personal narrative writers. And I know that that's something a lot of people are interested in writing. So I, I always recommend, there's a little book called The Memoir Project by Marion Roach Smith, which is excellent. And I think especially for memoir, it's great to have good coaching on that because the best memoirs are always the ones that reach from the first person singular experience to the shared human experience. And the ones that we forget are the ones that are just I, I, I all the way through. So there's a lot of, I think, there's a lot to be learned in that translation from one realm to the other. Um, and that's a, the memoir project just teaches that really well. Um, she teaches in an MFA program and does a lot of coaching and teaching her own. So there's just, it's very tactical, practical, but also she, um, as a writer, shows you as she's writing how it's done. So she'll teach it, but then she'll tell a story and you'll see it in action and you'll be like, oh, I get it now. So that's another one that I really like. That's so good. Um, yeah, I haven't read that one by Mary Richmond. I know who she is, of course, but I'm not, I didn't know that that book even exists. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm curious in your own writing, going back to the boldest statement you can make, do you have one of those about your own writing? That's a great question. I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. I'm just... I'm really stuck there and in a good way. I like, can't get that out of my mind. I want to ask really all good. of my authors now. Oh man. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I, I think it would, it would depend project to project because each it's probably, there will be a different answer depending on what I'm working on for that. But I would say one signature that rises to mind is just, I think in everything I write, I will always be writing into paradox mm, and that's, yeah. that's just of enduring interest for me. So I think that comes out in, you know, I, I could try and off the cuff a statement around it, but I do think that I'm, I'm very interested in writing into the, the both and tension. And I do think I'm working it out as I'm saying it now, but mm. I, I think that tension is 
inherent to both the creative process and the spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. And whatever I'm writing, I think that's a that's a banner over it, or it'll it'll thread back to that somehow. So that seems like a signature somehow. Yeah. Paradox and tension for all the for all the angsty writers among us. Maybe that strikes a chord, but feels true here. Also, I have a question too, going back to books. Um, do you have any books that you love that aren't like, well, I'm sure the answer is yes, but could you recommend a couple books that you love that aren't about writing? I'm just curious what you read when it's not like for your professional, you know, obligation. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a few on my nightstand right now. I'm coming a little late to this than most people, but that's okay. Is Know My Name by Chanel Miller, which is just stunning. It's just stunning. And something I'm, I'm learning from her as a writer is she is just so, she's so good at getting into the crevices of a thing and especially language. So, you know, her her story is a sensitive one and a lot of it has to do with kind of terminology that was, I mean, she was, many labels were put on her publicly. So the way she parses that language and really gets into it and pulls it apart to uncover the assumptions that are underneath the words that we use is just so precise and powerful. Yeah. So that's something I'm I'm just learning so much and really amazed by that. Yeah, powerful first person account. So that's one. And what else? I just I did just read on the fiction. I did just read as everyone's reading right now. Uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle okay. Zevin. Yeah, I think so. And loved it, really loved it. And that's a great example of, it's a big book. I forget how many pages, but it's it's a little doorstop book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something I've loved about it is she, she really, the book is really just one extended metaphor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's about so many human dynamic relationship things, but, but the, the, through the metaphor of video gaming, And you know that it's great writing when all the reviews out there are like, you don't have to be a gamer to be into this book. Like, trust me, this does not have to be your world. It is not my world. I I learned a lot about gaming reading it that I never knew. This is like not, these are not natural affinities for me, but she completely pulled me into the world and yeah, just the, the greater metaphor and uh, yeah so that that um yeah learning from that too but I love I do love fiction and you know that's a that's a it's a different kind of art form but it also can wake up areas of your brain I think for nonfiction writers too which are really fun yeah I love that and maybe that's another like tip for our reader or our listeners as you were talking I thought back to Glennon Doyle's second memoir, Love Warrior, Mm -hmm. which is great, but there is a scene in that book where she's talking about eating a hamburger. Like, that's all that's happening. I remember this. I remember this scene. 
And, you know, it's one of those, okay, I'm going to totally butcher it, but somebody really lovely and famous. So like people will forget what they, you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel or something. Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. See, I knew she was someone brilliant. I just can remember reading that passage and having lots of feelings about it. I can't remember the specificities, except that it's about a hamburger, her eating a hamburger and like her marriage. It has a lot to do with her marriage and how, what she's feeling about her husband. And now I'm like, but all these years later, I think about it pretty regularly and I'm like, okay, I need to go back and study that passage. What did she do? You know, what, why did that stick with me? So, you know, maybe like listeners, if there's just like a part of a book that you think about a lot or something you've read that has stuck with you for years, like go back and reread it. I love that as a prompt so much and Mm -hmm. paying attention to what moves you as a reader will always make you a better writer and I think I mean that's such a great example and I I think the stories that stented tend to stay with us the most are the ones Mm -hmm. that are so vivid I mean it would be a completely different story if she just wrote about eating lunch wouldn't it right or just about her marriage yeah just the details the details make can make things come so alive yeah, I love that prompt to go back and and what are those stories that have stayed with you and why? That's such a good question. It reminds me too of like Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit was one of the first narrative nonfiction books that I read. And I remember just being blown away. Like, I don't care at all about horse racing. I know nothing about it. I really, truly do not care whatsoever. And yet this book, like I couldn't put it down. I was like, this book has changed my life. <laughs> I want every book to be like this book. I want to read about horse racing all day now. (laughs) And I think that is such like, that is the powerful impact that a book can have when you invite readers into a world that they might not know anything about, but you can do it in such a way that you make them want to stay there. And you can do that in fiction and nonfiction. Well, Stephanie, where can people find you online and how would you invite people to, to be part of the conversation that you're hosting? Yeah. So I'm at slantletter.com, which will link you to my Substack email newsletter list. And that goes out monthly. So my, my intent there is I never want to send an email that's not worth your time. And I find I can commit to something good monthly. So I won't clog your inbox, but that's me there at slantletter.com. And then I'm most active on Instagram at Steph Duncan Smith. And yeah, I, I hope to also just say, you know, I I said this earlier, but it's worth repeating. Um, I think anyone who is investing in their writing enough to listen to this podcast, just keep at your writing practice it's not wasted. None of that's ever wasted, whether it's for your own personal practice of self-expression or writing or for the goal of becoming published, um, whatever that looks like for you. But it's it's all a practice and it's not wasted. And people like me on this side of the desk are, are rooting for you who are giving that your all. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being part of the Hungry Authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at HungryAuthors or HungryAuthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen. Thank you.